hola. Um, that is one of my three words of Spanish. So I thought we'd treat you to one of those. I'm going to try and see if I can work the other ones in as I go along. I'll have a little look. So thank you very much for coming along to this session this morning. I know you could be relaxing on a Sunday morning at mindfulness, but instead you're not. You're here looking at reading. So thank you. Um, We've got um, a couple of quick things to talk to you about before um, we start the session. So um, to start with, my name is James Clements. Um, I used to be a teacher for a long time, and now I have a sort of interesting role as a researcher. So I sit in this sort of gap in between um, academics in universities who come up with big, wonderful, interesting theories, and then teachers who actually get on with the practical business of teaching. What I get to do is kind of ferry the ideas backwards and forwards. So we find out something from interesting from a university and take it back to find a use for it in the classroom. And equally, I find things, hopefully, that teachers are doing that are brilliant and then transfer those back to feed into the theory. So I'm kind of like a taxi for ideas. Um, before we get started on the session itself, there's a couple of quick things I need to clear with you. Um, the first is, as the um, event sponsor box of the University Press, um, they've asked me to tell you that they might take some photographs and film you at different points. And that's because they've looked at the three sessions and you are by far the most attractive audience. So you might be photographed at different points. If you don't want to be photographed, just go and find them and tell them. Then they'll have to Photoshop you out of all of the pictures. So think how much work that will make. Do that. Um, the second thing is that we've got quite a short amount of time to talk about quite a big idea. So with your permission, what I'm going to do is kind of talk in big, broad headlines and then share with you just a couple of practical bits and pieces. Um, with a topic as big as this and with a research project as big as this that we're going to talk about, um, there's lots of other information. So with your permission, um, I will show you a link at the end. And if you follow that link, it will take you to a place you can put your email address in. If you put your email address in, um, we will send you an online folder, and it will have loads and loads of different bits of information. So it will have some case studies, it will have some examples of teachers' planning, some research, all the useful bits and pieces that come with the project. It will also have um, a copy of the slides, and I'm hoping that will be useful, because if you run a Sunday morning session on reading, you're almost guaranteed that the people who come are interested in reading and know lots about reading. So they are probably precisely the wrong people that you want to have in your audience. And probably you can think of people back at school who might be more benefiting of this session. So I will send you all the bits and pieces, and then you can share anything that's interesting with them really easily. Um, also, it means that if you ever have to do one of those inset sessions that you lead yourself, you can just take my slides, change the font, and pretend that you wrote them. Brilliant. It's going to save your weekend working. That's my gift to you. So we're going to have a little look at two big ideas linked to the theme of the, of the conference, which is um, obviously active learning. And we're going to look at one big idea, which is the power of elective reading. So reading that people choose to do, rather than reading when we tell them to do it. And the second is this idea that links really strongly, I think, with active learning. And that's this idea of children being active readers. So thinking about what they read, asking questions, and being critical. So that we can start from quite a young age. So to start with, before we get going, I thought we'd have a kind of quick recap of active learning and, um, and where this talk fits in. And I'm sure over the last day and a little bit, you've had quite a lot of stuff on active learning. So just to pull out the elements that we're going to talk about, this is where reading fits in to active learning. So first of all, this idea that we want students to be active participants. We don't want them to sit there, soak up what we tell them, and then disappear off to their PlayStations. Instead, we want them to have desire and curiosity to be interested in what we talk about. The second thing is a kind of metacognition. 
So we want students to have an awareness of when learning is happening, but probably more importantly, when it isn't, and when there are gaps in their understanding, and them to have some strategies where they can go and fill those things in. And then finally, we want students being active. So perhaps physically active by talking or questioning or moving around. Perhaps, you know, cognitively active by thinking and critiquing and creating. And all the way through, this is hopefully what we want for our classrooms. So before we launch onto the kind of two big ideas, it's worth having a little recap of, um, of reading and where we are at the moment as a kind of international theory. So there are lots and lots of, um, I suppose, theories, ways of explaining reading that bounce around, and they all slightly kind of contest each other. But the one that seems to be kind of broadly graining traction, I suppose, is what's called um, the simple view of reading. And this was um, uh, from a few years ago um, by two people called Goff and Tumner. And the simple view of reading suggests that reading isn't simple. It's not a straightforward thing, but we can talk about something that's very complicated in quite a simple way, and hopefully people can understand. So what it suggests is that there are two kind of strands to fluent reading, to strong reading. The first is um, word recognition. So that's getting the little squiggles off of the page or off of the screen. And there are a couple of different ways that we do that. So as readers, we have two kind of pathways that we take words from a page. The first is called the orthographic pathway. And that's a long way of saying we recognize the words. So normally the first word that children recognize is their name. And they recognize that. They don't need to sound it out. They don't need to identify the different sounds. They just know it. As we become fluent readers, we learn more and more words that we can just recognize and match instantly. So um, to give you a quick example of that, I'll pop up a word here. And I wonder if anyone, or perhaps everybody, is brave enough to have a go at reading it for me. I promise it is not a trick, OK? This is the word. Brilliant. Everybody whispered it really, really well. And nobody wanted to say it out loud, just in case. That's what every lesson is like for your children, by the way. Um, good. It's the word Tyrannosaurus. Now, just out of interest, did anyone need to decode that? Did they need to sound it out using phonics? No. Probably not, because it's already in our orthographic memory. We know this word, we can recognize it, and straight away we can map it with an idea, with something we know about. This is because it's a kind of familiar word, and once we've met a word a few times, we can do that. This is ideally what we want. But of course, if we come across an unfamiliar word, we don't have that option. We don't just recognize it straight away. We can't just map it straight to an idea. Often we go through what's called phonological decoding. So we match the individual sounds, put them together, make a realistic go at pronouncing it, and then sift through our brain to see, does that match with anything I know? So you had a good go at that one. Let's see if you can whisper, or maybe be a bit louder. Um, let's have a go. See if you can read this one. So this is another one. Very good. Excellent. Yes. A um, lot of, sort of slower whispering there, but still right on the right track. This is um, uh, a word we could say, you streptospondylus or you streptospondylus. I'm guessing that that wasn't in many people's memory, and they couldn't just recognize it and instantly say it. Took me about five times before I could read it and say it. Um, if you're interested, Tyrannosaurus is obviously a dinosaur. Eustreptospondylus is also a dinosaur. Um, it is the biggest predator that was found in Britain, okay, in the time of the dinosaurs. Now, we're in the middle of something called Brexit at the moment, which is a really good idea. Um, and anyway, after that's finished, we won't be allowed Tyrannosauruses anymore. We'll just have Eustreptospondylus, just good British dinosaurs. Hooray. Anyway. 
So this is visual word recognition. There are two paths to it, and we want them to kind of come together. This also links with, um, with comprehension, our language comprehension, the words that people say to us, the words that we hear, and the words that we understand. And if we've got both of these strands, we can identify the words on the page, and we can match them to language that we know, then we have fluent reading. So Hollis Scarborough is a famous reading theorist. He describes this as a rope. He says, fluent reading is like a rope. What you have is this kind of thick, strong mass of fluent reading. And it's made up of lots of individual little threads, individual little strands. And together, they tie together to make fluent reading, to make strong, solid reading. And this is what we want. So this is the simple view of reading. And of course, if you work in a real classroom, you will know it is exactly this simple. This is how straightforward it is. And never, ever do any of these little sort of threads come untied. Never does there anything kind of get snapped or, or are sorted out. There's another way that it's ever so slightly more complicated. And that's because um, this deals with being a reader, sorry, being someone that can read. So what we have here is someone that can read. And what we're interested, I think, is something that's a little bit more than that. We want children to be able to read, but we also want them to choose to read and to be the sort of people that identify themselves as readers. Mark Twain sums it up very nicely with this quote. So in education systems across the world, we spend huge amounts of time, huge amounts of money, huge amounts of energy in getting everyone to be able to read. But if they never, ever choose to read, they miss all the benefits that come from that elective reading, that choosing to read. And there are lots and lots of benefits that come from it. Um, there have been huge amounts of research done in this field. And it's one of the best research fields in kind of education research, really. And they have found correlations between children who choose to read and want to read right up to kind of 18, 19, and all sorts of brilliant, excellent educational things. So we find a really strong correlation between reading engagement, wanting to read, and being good at reading, reading attainment. Now, that's one of the things where you look at the educational research and think, I hope no one spent money on running that research project because that seems like quite an obvious thing. If you like reading, you tend to be better at it. If you're better at reading, again, you're probably going to like it more. But the kind of benefits of being a reader extend right beyond that. They extend to general knowledge, into vocab, into kind of achievement in writing. And the OECD did a big study looking at, I think, 41 different education systems, and they found a really strong map between um, children's attitude toward reading and also um, their wider academic performance. So this elective reading is kind of magical stuff. Um, but of course, it's a very difficult thing, because we live in a time when Children and young people have probably had never had so many things kind of competing for their time. It's difficult to choose to do it and to want to read when you have a television that's on all the time showing brilliant programs or a computer that you can pick up and rather than reading about Cristiano Ronaldo, you can be Cristiano Ronaldo. So this kind of gives us our problem. The, 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 the sort of last theory bit today, before we move on to some practicals, is what sits beneath this and how this might work. And the reason that reading does all of these useful, positive things, the possible cause, is something called statistical learning. So statistical learning is all the learning that happens through experience. 
It's a bit like um, the way that uh, big data companies learn about things. So things like Google, things like Facebook, they're able to learn lots and lots and lots about the people that use their services. So they can collect all these tiny, tiny pieces of data, and they put them all together, and suddenly they start to know things, and they can make predictions. So they can look at all the things that you look at on the internet, and then they know exactly the right moment to send you an email when you're at your weakest, so that you'll then go and buy that thing. There's apparently a story that Facebook knows when your relationship is on the rocks because it collects all the information about what lots and lots and lots of people do, and then it thinks, ah, you're doing the same sorts of things. Could be a problem. Maybe, I don't know, you're at three in the morning posting motivational quotes. Could be tricky. Who knows? So this is the same way that our brains work. What we do is we come across ideas time and time again, and we bump into them here, we bump into them there. Maybe an idea, maybe a phrase, maybe a particular pronunciation, maybe a particular new word. And as we bump into it in lots of different places, we build up a statistical pattern of how we can use it. Ah, this is for this, this is for this, this is where I can use it, this is where I cannot use it. So this is statistical learning, and there's a wonderful book by a man called Mark Seidenberg, who's a cognitive psychologist, all about this idea of statistical learning and language. Now, read one thing, I really recommend it. And he makes the point of this, that the explicit kind of instruction, the teaching that we do around any particular subject can only ever be tiny, because we only ever get a small amount of time with children. But actually, the kind of wider, broader statistical learning, that's the stuff that's happening in the background, and that's often what has a profound impact. So the more that we can get children to read, and to read in their own time, the better their education is likely to be, and more importantly, the easier our job is likely to be. Now, you may have spotted a slight problem with this. So this is the kind of definition of elective reading, what in the UK is sometimes called reading for pleasure. And the kind of best definition says that this is reading we do of our own free will. So reading that we do because we want to do it, or because someone says, this is a good thing to read, we start doing it because they've told us, and then we carry on doing it. Of course, the problem with this is that it's really hard to make someone electively read. It's very difficult to make someone read from their own free will. Today, we're going to have 20 minutes of elective reading. Everyone take out your books and read because you want to. Ah. Gabrielle, you're not reading. You're not reading for pleasure. Why not? There's something the matter. Gabrielle, I want you to get your book, and I want you to read for pleasure right now. I'm going to count to five. If you're not reading for pleasure, you will stay in at break time, and you will read for pleasure. It gives us a slight problem. Back to the leadership team. I'm worried about Gabrielle. He's not reading for pleasure. Maybe I should keep him for an art a reading for pleasure booster. He can miss football lessons and do extra reading for pleasure. It's unlikely to help Gabrielle want to read for pleasure. Now, there are lots of kind of analogies we can use for this. There's a wonderful book by a psychologist called Alison Gopnik, and it's about parenting. And she talks about parents and modern parents kind of fitting into different roles. And she says that parents often fall into two categories. One is parents who are gardeners and parents who are carpenters. He says some modern parents, they see their job as the kind of job of chiseling children into the right shape. So I've got my child, I want him to be prime minister, I need to chisel him right now with the right amount of extra maths tuition and violin and public speaking and all of these things. And when I've finished, he will be exactly the shape that I want him to be. 
And another school of thought says, okay, that's one way we could do it. Or we could approach it like a gardener. If we want a tree to flourish, we don't start chopping bits off that we don't like. Instead, what we do is we get the conditions right. What we do is give it the right amount of light, the right amount of soil, the right amount of sunshine, the right amount of nutrients, and it flourishes because of the conditions that we get right. So for elective reading, for reading for pleasure, I think that's where our energy needs to go. Rather than carving children into readers or dragging them screaming into being literate, instead what we want to do is get the conditions just right. So they see reading as this wonderful, enjoyable thing, and they want to do it. So we'll park that idea there, and we'll look at the practical stuff at the very end. Let's have a little look at this idea of active reading. Because yes, we want children to read, but when we're reading, we want them to think about what they're reading and to be engaged in it, not just to talk about Willard zombies this morning, just sort of sat there passively soaking up everything we talked about. So um, there are lots of things we can do to promote and support children to be active readers. As you'll see, this maps quite nicely onto our idea of active learning. Again, what we want is students that are, are active in the process, that are engaged and that are want to read, uh, rather than just reading because they've been told to. We also want them to have an understanding of when they understand and when they don't understand. So probably in no area of education is metacognition so useful as it is in reading. And then finally, what we want them to do is to be able to kind of respond actively to the texts. So not just to think, oh, I'm enjoying this, this is fine, but to think really carefully about why and what, and what message the author might be trying to give us. So we're going to look at just a couple of practical classroom things that might be useful to help with that, just so that there's something kind of useful and tangible and grounded in practice. So we're going to look at three really quickly. And the first is this idea of, as a teacher, modelling the business of inference. So modelling the ideas of, of how we make meaning from a text. Um, I'm a kind of English teacher by trade now, and most of the teaching that I do tends to be English. And I have favourite bits of teaching English. And my favourite thing to teach ever is what's called authorial inference. So it's when an author holds back an idea and they make the reader do some work and then slowly but surely you kind of begin to understand what's happening and you go, oh, and that's what I love teaching. I would teach that all day. I would teach it in reading and I would teach it in writing. Um, the best example of this authorial inference I've ever come across is this book. Um, I don't know if you know this book. It's called The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. Do we know this book? Good, brilliant, okay. Good if you do, good if you don't, everything's good. Um, this is the opening to the book that I'm going to share with you. Now, the book is the funniest, most joyful, most life-affirming book in the world, but it has got the yuckiest opening to any book ever. Okay, so this is the opening to the graveyard book. Okay, I'll let you read it for a second, okay? Now, what I love from the front is the kind of collective... Mexican wave of that we get as everyone gets to the end and goes, oh, 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 ah. Oh. And of course, Neil Gaiman could have begun this story with, um, there was a murder in the house. That would be a great arresting opening. But he doesn't. He makes us do a little bit of work so that we have to try and figure out what's going on. And that means that when we get there, we have this reaction and we go, Ugh. And it makes for a really effective piece of writing. Now, this authorial inference, it works really well with, with yucky feelings, but it works with joyful feelings as well. So this is a really lovely, funny book. This is a book about, um, uh, about a flying pony called Kevin, who um, is a kind of magical pegasus, but also a magical pegasus with weight difficulties. And um, this is the opening to the book of, um, of The Legend of Kevin. 
I know the golden rule is never to read from the slides, but I like reading the end bit, so please forgive me. Um, at the end bit, when we get to the point, and we find about his favourite foods, and we find out that his favourite things to eat are grass, apples, and biscuits. Only not in that order. Now, we could just say, Kevin likes biscuits. We could just say, Kevin likes a lot of biscuits. But we don't. What we do is we let us do a little bit of work. We solve the problem. Ah, there's the order, grass, apples, biscuits. Ah, not in that order. It's that little tiny bit of reward for doing a little bit of work. And it's a joyful thing. It's what makes us chuckle. It's what makes children feel clever and make them feel happy. So this is authorial inference. And I think in English lessons, we spend a lot of time teaching it. But there's a kind of another level to inference, which is what children get stuck on sometimes, and where with active learning and with active reading, with metacognition, we can really help them out. And that's what's called causal inference, sometimes called coherence inference. So what it is, it's the little tiny things that appear in a text which aren't trying to trick anyone, but sometimes get in the way of children understanding. So they're things like this. So you know, as established, fluent readers, you know exactly what Maria's drinking there. It's easy. But it doesn't tell us explicitly. We have to do a little tiny bit of work. We have to take the idea of the drink coming out of the bag, and we have to take the idea that there's now some apple juice in play, and that those two things are the same thing. For a child, maybe who's struggling to decode those words from the page as well, and also to translate them into a different language, that can be a really, really difficult thing to do. It doesn't leave us much cognitive space left to build this mental model to understand what's going on. A slightly trickier version might be something like this. So I'm guessing you know who is wearing the red dress. But I'm guessing also that there are people back at school who you know who would not know who is wearing the red dress. And of course, it says here, the lady was wearing a red dress. Of course, the lady's wearing one. And what we've got here, the difficulty is we've got this embedded clause that sits in the middle and gives us a bit more information. But the potential difficulty with this is that, first of all, if there's a question in an exam, who was wearing the red dress, we're stuffed. The second difficulty is, if we're trying to enjoy a really exciting thriller, and it's a brilliant, wonderful thing, and there's a glimpse of red that disappears away from the crime scene, we might have completely the wrong idea. And suddenly, our enjoyment of that book has gone and has disappeared. So I'm going to give you one final example of this. Let's have a little look, and um, we'll do a little hands up at the end, OK? So have a little read of it. All I want you to do is to read it and decide, did we go to Morocco or not? OK, that's my question to you. Okay, did we go to Morocco or not? You can have a little read of it and a little think. So it's Sunday and it's almost the last session of, of, of the conference. So we won't do any big hands up because that would just be demeaning. So instead what we'll do is we'll do a kind of like half-hearted hand up, okay? Okay, that seems better at this point. So half-hearted hands up, who thinks that we did go to Morocco? Okay, who thinks we didn't go to Morocco? Okay, that's the most hands so far. Who doesn't know? Okay, who doesn't care? 
What time is this? Anyway, good. Um, we had the most hands, I think, for we didn't go. So let's start with that. People who think that we, we, we didn't go to Morocco, is there a word in there that tells you or hints to you that we probably didn't go? But, brilliant. Um, managed to get an entire room full of teachers to shout the word but. Always good. Um, Good. Um, what we do as experienced readers is we zoom in on this little tiny conjunction and we look at all the work it's doing. It's doing a huge amount of work there. We wanted to get away to Morocco, but we know as experienced language users that but generally leads to disappointment. What we have is a lovely clause, something, 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 but oh, it didn't quite pan out. So we zoom on this tiny word. If we ask children to use reading strategies and to highlight the important bits, they highlight my wife and Morocco and holiday and August. They look for precisely the wrong words that are giving us perhaps the clues there. So this idea of kind of modeling inference sometimes can be such a useful thing and such a handy way of helping them to become these active readers that we're looking for. A second thing can be quite useful is getting them to look at kind of reading with a critical eye. And we can start that from when they're tiny. So they're always, always, always looking at what's an author doing here, as well as the information. How are they doing it? And why are they doing it? What are they trying to make me feel? What are they trying to make me think? And then when they open up Facebook when they're 17 and they have to vote in some sort of election or something, and there's lots and lots of fake news, hopefully they'll have that critical eye and will be useful and be good at looking at it. So I'll show you a quick example of this teaching children to read with a critical eye, because it doesn't need to be hard, it can be quite easy. So we're going to use an example of this. This is a story, The Pied Piper. It's a lovely retelling of it. I'm guessing you are, you are mostly primary teachers, you are familiar with the story of The Pied Piper? Yeah, brilliant. Um, just in case you're not, for some reason, um, the town of Hamlin is overrun by rats, and they're causing loads of trouble, loads of chaos, so the mayor decides to get rid of the rats, he will hire the Pied Piper. And the Pied Piper comes, plays a tune, the rats follow him, and they all drown. When the Pied Piper comes back, the mayor says, OK, well, you've got rid of the rats, so we're not going to pay you. So the Pied Piper does what I think anyone would do in his situation. He uh, murders all of their children. Um, it's a little bit extreme, but there you go. I think it would be a tough job to get it past a publisher nowadays. Um, I've got a book about child murder for children. But anyway, there we go. So this is a lovely retelling by Adele Garras. And what Adele Garras does at the beginning of the story, I think, is I think what she's trying to do is to set the tone that the rats are causing chaos. So the first thing we might do when we work with children is we might get them this big, broad evaluation question. Not start with kind of little questions about whether this works or whether it doesn't work, but open with this big, broad question. So I'll give you just maybe a minute to have a little read of her retelling of the opening, and then maybe just the person next to you, just one minute. Do you think she does a good job of setting the scene? So do you think she does a good job of setting the scene that the rats are causing chaos? So this is the opening to the text. Should we, do our, should we do one of our half-hearted shows of hands? That might work nicely. So hands up, I think she does a pretty good job of setting the scene. It's a pretty good job. Good, okay. Hands down. Hands up, anyone who thinks, no, not for me. 
missed opportunities, I don't like it. What a positive bunch you are on a Sunday morning. Excellent. Okay. Is there anybody, and I don't know if you've got the microphones, we'll just do it with a loud voice. Is there anyone who's got both a loud voice and would like to tell us one thing they really like about this text, they think is effective or they think is good? Oh, lady here, please. Oh, there's a microphone coming. Look at this, you see. You don't get this in England. Someone just goes, everyone just goes, mm. but in uh, South America, it's all sorted out. Brilliant. Well, the comparison of their eyes with the red points in the darkness, and then this idea of disturbing the dreaming of the babies. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two things there. One is we learn from that comparison with the, with the red points of fire in the darkness. We know that these are not ordinary rats. These are some big, giant, awful, terrible rats. Also, it kind of links it straight into something that would be the most awful thing we could imagine. You know, these rats in with our children in their cots. These are kind of predatory, awful rats somehow. So there's lots of bits and pieces. And by starting with this evaluation question, I suppose picking up some of the themes we've had around philosophy for children this morning, picking up some of these themes, it gives children space to offer their opinions first. And we'll look at a good practical way of doing that in a minute. The second thing is, how do we get them to then think, okay, these words haven't appeared on the page by magic. Someone's put them there. An author has very carefully chosen how to put these words there. And my favourite way of doing that is by starting with something very simple that every child can do, then using it for something more difficult. So a simple task might be a really straightforward thing that we might ask a whole class of children, say, let's look at this. Can you find where the rats are? And can you, in your little groups or in little pairs, make me a list of all the places that the rats are? And most children can contribute to some of that, even if they just say they're everywhere. Brilliant, they are. Tell me a bit more, and off we go. So I won't make you do this, because I reckon you'll probably find it quite easy. But hopefully, what you would find is something a bit like this, that these are all the places that she puts rats. So that's a good, straightforward classroom activity, literal retrieval. It helps everybody out. It's the sort of thing we have to do in exams. But as good reading teachers who are creating active readers, we don't just leave it there. Then the next question we always ask is, OK, why? Why has the author done that? Why has she put them in those different places? And pulling them out into a list helps us to have a little look. So first of all, we have the rats everywhere. OK, well, that's a big, broad statement. But it doesn't tell us, I suppose, much detail. And our everywhere will be different. If I say the rats are everywhere, everybody will imagine something different. Then we go to down alleys and up drain pipes. Well, so what? That's where rats should be. That's fine. Oh, they're over floors. Ah, they've come inside now. They're in the larder. And we explain to children what a larder is. What a room just for food. Oh, amazing. I'm getting one of those when I'm rich. Yes. Then they're under the beds. So they've come into the bedroom. There they are in the most private, quiet place in the house. They're between the sheets and the chest of drawers. You close drawers, you open it, and the rats have got in somehow. As you pointed out, they're in cots where ladies, where babies, sorry, lay dreaming. So they're in the most kind of invasive places. In the words of the internet, it escalates pretty quickly, doesn't it? From like, oh, this is okay, to whoa, they're where? And every single person will have a different point on the scale where they start to think, I don't want a rat there. This is awful. Some 
it's one, some it's when I mentioned rats at the beginning, some it takes them down to seven before they don't like it. So getting across to children, these rats aren't just where they are in the story. Adele Garris has put them somewhere really, really carefully to manipulate us, to make us feel and think in a special way. And that's what writers do, and that's what we need to be careful about when we're reading, is being critical and active. So we might do an activity like this, and hopefully that helps them to think about the language and the structure of language. The other thing we might do is we might look at two books that take a different view on something. So often in secondary schools, we'll take two different newspapers and we'll compare their different attitudes to the same event. Crikey, that one thinks it's brilliant, that one thinks it's awful. Brexit. Um, here, we've got two books. This is like the beginning of that. Here you've got one with mini marvels. Lovely, tiny, wonderful, special, brilliant little animals. And we can read the language, not just the language that the animals are lovely, but how do we know that the animals are lovely? This wonderful creature, this brilliant animal. We can then look at invasive species. Do we find any of the same things? Some of the invasive species are, in species are incredible. They're amazing animals that survive all over the world. But are they portrayed as being good? No, they're not. So comparing these two things and looking at the language patterns helps children to think, ah, has the author here got a particular agenda? Have they got an opinion? And if they have, I should be looking out for that. Because if that happens in my reading scheme, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen in everything that I read, pretty much everywhere. So this idea of kind of critical reading, we can introduce right, right, right from the beginning. And then the third kind of practical thing we're going to have a look at is this idea of, of, of book talk. So this is um, uh, a bit like philosophy for children. This is a set, a kind of way of thinking and looking at texts and books that have been around for the best part of 40 years, but I've not seen them ever bettered. So you know sometimes you put a book up, a text up, and you say, right, we're going to read that, now we're going to talk about it. And what happens is one of two things. Either everyone just goes, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I liked it. You? Yeah, it was all right. And then that's that. Or two children take over, and they tell you everything there is about it, while the rest sitting agreeing. Yeah. So this is a lovely kind of... Um, uh, sharing way of taking a text and looking at a book. We're going to look again at a little example. We're going to look at the writing of um, an author called Geraldine McCorkran, who is the most wonderful children's author in the world. So if you don't know her, go and read Geraldine McCorkran's books and read them to your children. They are the most beautiful and glorious things. And we're going to look at one example from this book, which is a retelling of the Odyssey. And she retells the story of the Odyssey. And we'll look at one little tiny bit from it, if you don't know this bit. So in the Odyssey, um, Odysseus is on his way home from the Trojan Wars. And he's on his way back to Ithaca, which is the island that he's the king of. And he fights his way back. And on the way, he upsets the gods. And they make sure that his journey is a really difficult, terrible journey. And on the way, he has all these kind of different problems. On one island he lands on, he meets a king who is in charge of the winds. And he says, this is a bag of the winds. Have a hold of these. I'm going to put all of the winds that might blow you somewhere else into a bag. And the only one I'm going to leave blowing is the one that will blow you straight home. As long as you don't open the bag, you will be blown straight home. And of course, he takes the bag really carefully, tucks it down, falls asleep, and his men open the bag. So this is Geraldine McCorkran's retelling of what happens when this bag opens and all the winds of the world sweep out and blow around. Okay? you make of that 
I love this. I think it's a beautiful piece of writing. As an English teacher, I want to take it and I'm going to start pulling it apart and showing them this and showing them that. Oh, look what she's done here. Look at this alliteration. Look at this clever phrase. Look how she plants that there, then picks it up later on. I want to tell them why it's good because I love it. And what I've learned from bitter experience is to drag myself back, take a deep breath and do something else first. And Book Talk gives me a frame for doing that. It gives children a frame for having a little look. So it's built on the work of a man called Aidan Chambers, who's a researcher in the UK, and his work is brilliant. If you can ever read anything by his, please do. And he says, if you give children, from the smallest children to the biggest children, a text, four questions lead to really, really good discussions. They look really simple, but they're really, really clever. And each one can be translated, as long as it's translated really well, into a kind of, to work in any language. So the first thing you ask children, or students, right up to A-level is, is there anything you liked about the text? Not, did you like it? Because they'll just say, yeah, or no. But, is there anything you liked? It's teaching them to focus on specifics. So they're beginning kind of literary criticism. I have to pull out one or two things that I liked. The next thing is, is there anything you disliked? And again, it's not did you like it or did you not like it, what did you dislike? And again, it helps children to start being critical. If I put that text up, tell everyone how much I like it, most of my class, because they like me, will think, oh, it is a good text, I believe him, and they won't want to say if they don't like it. Here, this gives them a license to disagree with me, and that's a really useful thing to have, because that's what literary criticism is. The next question I think is the cleverest of all. He says, is there anything that puzzles you? Not, is there anything you didn't understand? Because the minute you ask someone, what didn't you understand, children don't want to lose face. I understood all of it, it's easy. If you say what puzzled you, it's much gentler, much softer. And what it gives you is a way of saying, I understood it, and I'm very clever, but I was a little bit puzzled by that bit or that bit. It gives you a little get out to kind of show your weaknesses, I suppose. And then, are there any patterns or connections? Can you link this to anything else you know about in the whole world? And this hopefully does what we want reading to do, which is to link a text, a book, to children's kind of wider reading lives. So these are kind of useful, big, broad things. And I hope how you can see we might look at these and then look back at the text and have a little look at them. With younger children, we might do the whole book. We might read Bear Hunt, then ask those questions. Or we might put a picture up and look at it and ask the same questions. We work with a school in Edinburgh, and they use this um, in every single year group once a week. So by the time the children moved through the school, by the time they got to about 10 or 11, they were amazing at doing this. They didn't need to put the prompts up. They could put a text or read a poem, and the children immediately started. Well, what I really liked was the way the author does this. Ah, I wasn't so sure about that. So it's this wonderful thing of kind of continuing, starting something when they're young, when they're happy to do it, and keep going through that regular kind of same set and same frame. If you're interested in the folder that I send you, I'll put lots of examples of this in practice so you can have a little look. But I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, the last point I will make about, about text and pulling text apart is this, that part of the skill of a teacher is knowing how to model something or how to promote active reading or whatever. The other half is knowing when to leave a book alone and when not to spend any time talking about it, but just to read it and let everyone enjoy it and then step away. Um, this is my favourite book for that. This, this is um, Super Happy Magic Forest. I will read this book to any age group of children, from A-level down to nursery. 
and they always like it. But they like it for different reasons. What I like about this book is basically it's like um, the stationery department, which children like, but brought into book form. So you know when they have the little rainbow rubbers and um, unicorns and all the other magical things? This is that book in kind of book form. And it's brilliant and it's glorious and it's wonderful and children love to hear it read to them and then they'd have to love to have a little look at it. What I like about it is like most good books for children, it works on a couple of levels. So I like it because they like it, but I also like it because it reminds me of other things and it's very clever. So it tells the story of an adventure where the creatures go off on a, a special quest and on the way they get lost. And my favourite bit of the book is this, when this happens. Now, if you have ever read any Tolkien books or have seen The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, you will know that every time J.R. Tolkien gets lost or gets stuck, he just gets the characters rescued by a giant eagle. He uses it about 15 times. Oh, that's difficult. Almost the end of the day. Giant eagles, right, off for tea. This book recognises that. I laugh when it comes up. Children have got no idea. And that's one of the joys and one of the reasons we should choose books to work with children. So... Very, very kind of finally, these are, I suppose, some big, broad headlines that I'm going to pick up with the stuff I sent you later on that I think are really useful if we want children to be these lifelong elective readers. These are, I suppose, my kind of five-point manifesto. The first is, what we need to do is, is choose the most rich, most wonderful, most exciting books that we share with children. What children read in their own time, I think, is up to them. And they can choose to read the same book over and over again if they like. But when they're with us, we have this little window to share with them books they wouldn't pick up from anywhere else, books that they wouldn't see, books that would make them really excited. The other thing we can do is we can read aloud to them. It seems so soft, it seems so fluffy, there's not a test, there's not a question. But by reading aloud, the children that don't read in their own time get to hear great books. They get to hear the language and the patterns of them come across the vocabulary. Everything has an effect size in education at the moment. Reading aloud to students has one of the highest effect sizes of anything, and yet it's one of the simplest, cheapest, and most fun things you can do as a teacher. The other thing I think it's worth doing is building in that time for them to choose a book and to read independently, where we're not going to study it. There are children that read at home, and they read widely at home. There are lots of children who say they read at home, but they don't really. What they do is sit with a book for 20 minutes because they have to, and at the end, they're allowed their iPad back. And that's very different from what we want, which is children sitting, kind of soaking a book and enjoying it. So we can find this time in school somewhere, all the way through school, where there's nothing else to do but pick up your book and read and talk to your friend about it. That's likely to be a useful thing. The other thing that I think is, is, is crucial is time carved out on the curriculum to talk about books and promote books and think about books and share books. And we visited lots and lots of schools that go about doing this in different ways. And every school we visit, the teachers have kind of different tricks and different strategies for doing that. So um, you will have your own, I'm sure, but these are my kind of favourite practical things. We went to visit one school and the teacher said, what I like to do is this, um, I wait until the children are busy. So when they're all sat down doing handwriting or doing a page of sums or whatever it might be, I get a book from the library and I enjoy it in front of them. So I get my book out and while they're all thinking, I said, don't look at me while I'm reading, you just all do this. Oh, oh, oh no. Oh, it is. Oh, 
and the hammier and bigger the acting, the better. And then, once she's finished, she just puts the book down. Guaranteed, a child who's been secretly watching will tiptoe out of their place, get that book, and sneak it back to their place, because they've got it, and it's brilliant. A second thing that we really liked was another teacher who, who, who worked in the school library. She said, what we do is if we want children to read a particular book, we ban it. So what we do is we have a great big shelf with banned books. These books must not be read. They are not suitable for children. And we leave them there for about two weeks, and children come and look at the banned books, but no, they can't touch them. And then we say, oh, I can't believe it. They've listened. You can read them. And the banned books go in about five seconds, every child wants a banned book. I am so naughty, I am so rebellious. I can't say why this book was banned, but anyway. And then my favorite one of all, I think, is the idea of reverse psychology. So for some children, if you say to them, this is a brilliant book, I loved it, you might love it too, that's enough for them to pick it up and want to read. But for other children, the opposite works even better. So one teacher um, said to us, what I like to do is this, I will stand up with a book and I will say, okay, um, I've got this book and I read it over the weekend. I really, really liked it. I really enjoyed it. But it is not for everybody. It's not. Of the 30 of you, 27 of you wouldn't like this book. Wouldn't be your cup of tea. You wouldn't like it. But three of you, oh, three of you, it will probably be your favorite book ever. My goodness, does every child want to be one of the special three that gets the book? It's me. And most of them will read it just to see if they are one of the special three. Now, I'm sure there's all sorts of ethical problems with doing things like that, but if it gets them to read the book, maybe it's a good thing. Um, and then... I suppose a couple of other kind of last things to finish with. Um, we've had other bits and pieces where people have got around particular problems in order to get children to pick up books or to want to read. We had one school and they had a real problem with um, people borrowing older books. So when brand new books arrived in school, every child wanted them, they were desperate to get hold of them. Older books, they were less keen. So they said, what we do is this, we put in some of the books Willy Wonka style golden tickets in some of the older books. And if you take a book from the shelf and it's got a Willy Wonka golden ticket in it, the ticket tells you to read the book and then take the book to the librarian. So you read the book, you take it to the librarian, you tell her you've read it, and then you win a prize. Great. So if you put the golden tickets in the right books, children will read them. What you'll also find is you get some children that work their way along the shelves. Into the, yes, got one. Brilliant. If it's in the right book, it's a brilliant plan. The things children will do for a golden bookmark or just the fun of getting a golden ticket. We had another school and they were worried about the range of children's reading. So the children read a lot, but they just read the same authors and the same books. And what they wanted them to do was to try and broaden their tastes and their palette. So what they did was they um, gave the children, if they wanted one, a loyalty card. Okay? A bit like a coffee loyalty card. Um, I'm pretty sure there is no problem at all with the trademarking here. No one will get in trouble. Starbucks, they're good people, I'm sure. Anyway, and what they said was, if the children, if you read a book that hits one of these different categories, you get a little tick, you get a little stamp, and at the end, what you'll get is um, a little certificate saying you've done all of these things, or a little prize. So the children will work through, and they were willing to take a chance. They would read a book by an author they hadn't read before, 
because they could get it stamped. And it just nudged their behaviour into doing something we wanted them to do in a really joyful, kind of interesting way. The final one for this little bit that we saw that we really liked was this idea of, um, I suppose, the environment. And one of the schools we went to visit, that I'll put some pictures of in the folder I send, they had the most beautiful library in the world. And it was wonderful. And you walked in, and it was incredible. And I said to the librarian, how have you done this? Um, is this, you know, your amazing eye for design? She said, no, no, not at all. She said, this is what I did. I went to a bookshop, um, a children's bookshop, and I got out my camera phone, and I took photos of the children's bookshop. Then I went to our site manager, our caretaker, who's good at things like this, and said, can you make me the children's bookshop in our library? And they closed it for a couple of days, and they just moved the books around, moved the shelves around, had round tables that displayed the books. And their idea was, whoever has been paid to organise the inside of a children's bookshop has been paid loads of money to make it really irresistible, to make you want to pick books up and buy them. They thought, if we can have the same shape, the same way of moving through the space, maybe children will pick those books up and read them themselves. So if you are arrested in a children's bookshop taking photographs next weekend, um, A, I apologise. B, the event is sponsored by OUP. Maybe they will pick up your legal fees. I do not know. It's worth a try. So phone them first before you phone your lawyer. Um, so just to finish, a couple of really useful resources that I think are really handy. If you are interested in this kind of idea of a reading culture, elective reading, children choosing to read for any particular age group, this is the most amazing website in the world. It's called Research Rich Pedagogies, and it's just a collection of about 250 different case studies. So different schools that have had a problem and have tried something out to try and solve it. Our children don't read. Our children like PlayStation more than books. Our teachers don't have time to read the children's books and keep up to date all these different problems, and then there's a solution for each one. Whatever the problem might be in your school that you have to solve or that you face, someone somewhere has solved it already. And you can find this, borrow it, and hopefully borrow some ideas and change them to your context. Very finally, um, there are two things that I would share with you, two things that I've written. On the left-hand side is a free report that is all about um, building a reading culture and getting children reading. Um, it's free to download. I will send you a PDF in the folder. Um, you can order print copies, I think, as well. But it's a really useful thing for teachers that don't have lots of time, don't come things like this on a Sunday. You can give them a copy. They can have a little read and maybe take some ideas from it. On the other side is a book that I've written all about taking great texts and putting them in the middle of teaching. Um, I'll be honest with you. This book that I've written, it's not for everybody. But... Maybe just three of you. It might just be. Anyway, there you are. So um, before I finish, um, we've looked at two big ideas and how they might link to active learning. I hope the value is kind of thinking about the ideas this morning, but hopefully the bigger value will be all the bits and pieces that I send you in terms of case studies and presentations and other things if you are interested in these things. So if you would like it, um, there's a little thing you can put in down there, which is oxford.ly forward slash jcesarp, or you can take a photo of that thing if you are technologically advanced, or OUP will be at the door and you can take a picture of their little thing and they will do it. So hopefully if you want all the resources and all the bits and pieces to share, they will come along to you. Um, I'll put this back on in a second. Um, so we'll leave this hopefully up. But um, anyway, as I kind of started with the thing, reading, learning to read is like the main business of a school. And if children leave us unable to read, 
we've done something wrong. But it shouldn't be our sole aspiration. What's more important is learning to read and then wanting to read and choosing to read. And it's such a powerful driver of so many different aspects of education. And if children don't get it from home and they don't get it from us, they just won't get it. So every child we turn into an elective reader is a little tiny win. So I wish you the very best of luck with it. Thank you for listening this morning. Thank you.